Let's pray. Father, we are dependent on you. We're dependent on your son working through us by the power of your spirit. Your word says that your spirit knows the depths of you, God, because you are one. And you have given us that same spirit who reveals truth to us. So we proclaim not an earthly wisdom, not a human wisdom, but we proclaim godly wisdom that comes only from the spirit that is revealed to us through your word. So we are dependent on your spirit to teach this morning. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 76 is an interesting text. It's written by Asaph. Um, and ultimately, uh, your subtitle above yours. Remember, the subtitles in your Bible are man-made. That's not scripture, just subtitles that the interpreters put there to give you an idea what the text was about. Uh, but yours probably says something like, who can stand before you? So that question, who can stand before you, the answer, it's a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious. No one. No one can stand before God. And it, what that question really means is, your presence, God, is so profoundly great that we're all just kind of like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when we meet you, when we're in your presence. If we were to stand before you like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, he falls on his face and says, Woe is me! What am I doing here in the presence of this great God? So the question itself reveals a greatness about God that is incomprehensible. And what I want to show you today is that God is great. And I, that just sounds like God is great. That just sounds like such a generic phrase because we use the word great all the time in contexts that have nothing to do with greatness. Like, hey, I'll pick you up today at two. Great. <laughs> it's like, that's not great. I mean, I, you know, that's not great when you compare what that is to God and his greatness. And so there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, using great in other contexts. It's totally fine. But we kind of become sort of desensitized to this idea of greatness and certainly desensitized to the idea of God's greatness. And that is because we just don't know him well enough. That's really what it boils down to. We just don't know God well enough. None of us in this room know God well enough. I, I don't care if you are 80 years old and you've been a prominent, well-known, praised theologian for the last 60 years of your life, and everyone trusts everything you say because every book you write is just the most theologically and biblically profound, great book ever written, and you preach the greatest sermons ever, or you're, you just, you're in the Bible 24 hours a day without eating, without sleeping, without drinking water, whatever, you just... You, you still don't know God. You just don't. God gave us himself in his word, and he put in us himself in his spirit, and his spirit reveals the truth of who he is through his word. So we can know God through his word. I'm not saying you don't know God at all. What I'm saying is you don't know God in his fullness, and you never will. You can't. 
It's impossible. Why? Because you have a finite mind. You only think in terms of time and you think in terms of parameters and everything has a limit in, in our existence. Even when we think about eternity, we think about going to heaven and spending eternity on, a, on, on the new earth that God creates and, and living there with him in the presence of Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. And even that idea of ever and ever and ever and ever still to us is like, I mean, imagine if God said, I promise after this life, just, you know, 100 years on earth, you get 10,000 years with me. It'd still be worth it. But you'd be like, man, what are we going to do when that 10,000th year comes around? After 10,000 years of being with God, we're going to be pretty amazed. I don't think that's, we're going to want it to stop. 10,000 years sounds like an unimaginably long time, right? All right. 100 trillion years. How's that? Well, that feels like forever, so really, that's fine with me because it's going to feel like forever, but one day it's going to stop. Because that hundred trillionth year is going to show up and you're like, no, it's over? That never happens. We just, we just can't even think in terms of infinite. And God himself is infinite. His mind is infinite. His characteristics are infinite. And we are finite, the opposite of infinite. We are finite. We are we, are, we have boundaries. We can only think so far and understand so much. So no matter how much we learn about God, and even when we step into eternity, into the presence of God and in the worship of Jesus in our eternal earth that we'll spend the rest of eternity in, like even then, moment by moment, we're going to be blown away by God's glory. In Isaiah 6, when the angels are described, they have wings over their faces, they're covering their faces, and it reveals a, a humility that is required when you step into the presence of God. His greatness is so profound and so amazing that when the angels or the seraphim are standing in his presence, they're like, whoa, and they got to cover their eyes, whoa, and they sing, holy, holy, holy. And the reason it says holy, holy, holy is because, well, God is holy. It's his primary attribute and characteristic. Everything that God is, is filtered through his holiness. His holiness is the description of his greatness. He is great because he's holy. Everything about him is holy. His love is holy. His patience is holy. His grace is holy. Everything about him is holy and perfect and pure. And, and, and holiness isn't just a perfection and a purity. Holiness is an awesomeness. And the reason the angels say holy, 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 well, first of all, in Hebrew language, that phrase holy, 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 um, in Hebrew, you would repeat a phrase a second time. So you'd say holy and then holy. That, re that repeat in Hebrew is an emphasis. So if you were to describe someone as um, kind, in Hebrew, you would say, oh, they are kind, kind, and you would repeat it and it would put this massive infinite emphasis. And we use adjectives. We use things like, oh, he's super kind. We don't say, oh, he's kind, kind. That means something different in our English language. But in Hebrew, that repeat is emphasis. So when the angels sing, he is holy, holy, and they say it a third time, holy, they are setting in unprecedented reality about God that no one else gets three words described is certainly not the only word that reveals a perfect greatness and the reason they repeat it is not just for emphasis but because as the angels cover their eyes they they look up at God and they go ha ah, holy 
and then they look away. It's too much. And they look up, holy, and they look away, and they look up, holy, and they just repeat this song over and over again because to look upon God is overwhelming. He is infinite. He is indescribable. In 2 Corinthians 9.15, Paul writes, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Inexpressible. First of all, what's the gift? Let me ask you this question. You can answer it. We can have a discussion here. What is the gospel? What is in, in one word, what is the gospel? I've said it a million times. What is the gospel? God is the gospel. The gospel is you get God. What's the good? Gospel means good news. What's the good news? The good news is you get God because of Christ. So that's the good news. So God is the gospel is ultimately what it boils down to. God is the gospel. And therefore, and according to Paul, the gospel is the gift that we get God through Christ. And so when Paul writes, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, he's saying thanks be to God for his inexpressible gospel. And the inexpressible gospel is God. That's the good news. God is the good news. His love, his grace, his kindness, his patience, his long-suffering toward you to give you Christ is the good news. And because he's that way, he pays for your sins and you get him. That's not fair, but it's great. (laughs) And it's a gift. And according to Paul, it's inexpressible. And if God is the gift, then God is inexpressible. He is inexhaustible. He is infinite. He is, another word for inexpressible is indescribable, incomprehensible, unfathomable. You cannot begin to wrap your mind around who God is. And we talk about God all the time. And that's fine. Like, I'm not saying we shouldn't describe God because he's indescribable. Because scripture gives us descriptions of God. The Bible tells us what God is like. And it is very Appropriate. In fact, it is required of all created beings to worship God according to what he has revealed about himself. So we're, God is described as loving, and his love is never-ending. He's long-suffering, meaning he patiently endures your sin for years. He's kind. He's also just and full of vengeance and wrath against sin, and, and uh, he's gracious We deserve eternal hell for offending a perfectly holy God, and yet he shows us love and his kindness, and he shows us his patience through Jesus Christ to live a perfect life for us and die on the cross for our sins, and his blood covers our sins, and we can spend eternity with him. That's not fair, but it's good, and we get these descriptions of God's characteristics and his nature and what he's like, and we can say those things out loud. God is, and then fill in the blank. God is perfect. God is holy. God is great. But even those descriptions are totally pale in comparison to the reality of who he is. The reason we have to spend eternity in heaven, in his presence, on a new earth, worshiping him forever, is because it takes an eternity to absorb him. He's an infinite God, so eternity is infinite. It never ends. Because God never ends in revealing more and more greatness. 
And, and this, on the other hand, because God is infinitely holy and great and indescribable, to offend that holiness at all with any sin requires an infinite punishment, which is eternal death and hell. Which is why when people don't believe in Christ and die, they go to hell. Because it takes an eternity to cover and pay for the sin of offending an infinitely eternal God. His holiness is infinite, so your sin is infinitely punishable. And the grace of God is to pay for that infinite death through Christ on the cross in only a few hours, that only Christ himself is the only person in all of human existence who because of his perfection, because of his holiness, can endure the sins of mankind on a cross, sins that would take an eternity to be poured out on you, only take Christ a few hours on the cross to pay for your sins. So that you could then spend his infinite nature in the presence of God. And in that infinity, in that eternal life, in that foreverness, we are going to be like the angels in Hebrews 6 who look down and look up at God and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Like I, I am, to- first of all, I am totally underselling this. You are going to be blown away. Again, I cannot describe it. I could spend the next hour describing the greatness of God and our reaction to it and the mind-blowing reality of who he is and what it's like. and what we're, it, it, it would just totally not satisfy the reality. I could spend every minute of the rest of my life forever until the day I die. Let's say I die at 90 years old. I'm 40. That's 50 years. 50 years I could spend every day only sleeping and drinking water and eating a few snacks. I'll take like, you know, maybe an hour off. But the rest of the time, 23 hours a day, I am proclaiming the, the infinite nature of God. Declaring every word in scripture, breaking them down, describing them, digging into them, trying to understand who God is. Trying to figure out this indescribable, inexpressible God and it would totally fail. It would be glorious, it would honor God, it would magnify his name. It would be the best use of my time, there's no doubt about that. But it would completely fail at describing God. Even though I'm using words and ideas that God gave us to describe him with. We cannot fathom his greatness. And yet, we sin? Against this God? The problem with humanity is not anything other than we don't know God. Because if we did, if we took those 23 hours a day to dig into and describe and proclaim who God is to know him better and spend the next 50 years, 23 hours a day doing only that, at the end of your life, you should be and would be the most humble human who's ever lived other than Jesus. Because you cannot do that and not be blown away. Okay, that was the first sentence of my introduction. So <laughs> we're gonna jump <laughs> we're gonna jump into the text. It's verse one. In 
Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. So immediately, we get this idea, okay, that, that Asaph is telling us this idea that we tend to take for granted that God has made himself known to us. Specifically to Israel here in Judah, God is known. But what we know is that God is known to Israel so that through Israel, the Messiah would be born. And through the Messiah, the whole world could come to know God. So God makes himself known to us. And not only does he reveal himself so that we can know him, but once known, it is also revealed to us how great he is. Now, if, if man was honest, if humanity was honest, if you were honest with yourself and really took a, 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 an honest evaluation of yourself, and really dug into your nature, really dug into uh, your sin, the ways in which you sin, there are so many sins we commit that we don't even know we're committing. Sins that we're not even aware are just like inundated in a, our behavior Um, automatic reactions and choices we make daily that we don't even recognize as sin. All that is covered by God's grace in Jesus Christ. Thank God. So if you really dig into who you are, you find out you're really a fallible and finite human being with only so much to offer. But at the same time, if you dig into yourself and Think about humanity, human beings in general, and what we're capable of. Oh my goodness, we, we are incredible creatures. I mean, really, like, we can do unbelievable. We are, we are the greatest thing that has been created. There's no question about that. Like, God created man and then stopped. Actually, God created woman then stopped, ladies, right? So... Woman is the pinnacle of creation, and woman comes from man. Humanity is the pinnacle of creation. Nothing compares to us. And all of else, other than God, nothing in all of creation compares to us. Nothing compares to our mind or our ability. Our ability is so great and our potential is so profound that when we started building a tower to reach the heavens, God came down. And again, God's greatness over humanity. He had to come down, right? Showing he's greater than the people trying to build a tower to to the heavens in Genesis 11. And in coming down, he says in Genesis 11, 6, nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So God moved them all over the earth and changed their languages to confuse the languages with the intention of hindering man's ability because the way God created us was unbelievable. So clearly we are capable of incredible things and that is especially obvious when we're compared to the rest of creation, right? I mean, at creation, God said to Adam and Eve, have dominion over everything. Everything. Adam named the animals. Right? Like, he has authority over the animals. We have authority over everything in creation. All the earth is ours to subdue and to steward well. And, since we are created in God's image and His likeness, 
we possess things that maybe some other creatures possess, but mostly we're the only ones who possess it. We possess logic and reason and understanding, consciousness, intelligence, authority, and so many other things that we, are, that we have or that we're like, that are like God. We're the, most, we're the creatures on earth that are most like God. We're the only ones that were made in his image and in his likeness. So it is our God-likeness that makes us great as created beings. And guys, we are great. I'm describing God's greatness. We are great. I mean, I'm not saying you're great and you should be arrogant about it. I'm just saying God made some pretty cool things. I mean, we're like a, a sack of bones and blood and muscles and it moves and my hands go with my words and there's this like process and it all just happens naturally and we've got this like just if you think about the nuances of the human body and mind and capabilities and it's just like it's unbelievable it is you could spend the rest of your life the next 50 years 23 hours a day describing the incredible nature of humanity let alone God and you still wouldn't finish describing how great the humankind is how much more than how much greater than is God so our greatness comes from being in God's likeness. We are not great on our own. We have no self-willed power to, to choose to be created. We didn't choose to be created. We didn't choose to be these great beings who are capable of so much with all this incredible potential. All of our greatness as humans is dependent on the reality that we were created in God's image and likeness. And that alone should humble us. And make us recognize that we are far too boastful and far too arrogant and proud to ever think any thoughts like, I'm pretty great. I used to think that. I remember when I was 18. Because I remember thinking, hey, I was always told that 18-year-olds are the most arrogant. And I remember thinking, I'm not arrogant. I just literally can do anything. I'm not arrogant. I could do, what do you want to do? A backflip? I bet you I can do one. Never done one. Bet you I could do it. I remember telling myself that. That's how arrogant I was. Young 18-year-old, young men, keep that in mind. Not as great as you think you are, but you have incredible potential. And, and so this arrogance, it would be total arrogance or, or, or pride to ever think, I'm pretty great, or I can do anything. And that I can defend biblically because that's why James says in James 4.15, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James says that to remind us that all that we do and all that we plan and all that we purpose is solely dependent on whether or not it is ordained by God. You may plan for tomorrow, but Proverbs 27.1 says tomorrow is not promised. And James repeats it in James 4.14 as well. Meaning, we are subject to God's ordained will and thus we must be humbled by the greatness of God compared to the greatness of humanity. We should be humbled when we recognize God's sovereignty and will and authority over us. Not only his greatness and the description of his totality in compared to ours, but just his ability to decide what we do in life. Man makes his plans, but God establishes his steps. That's one of my favorite Proverbs. 
Man makes his plans, but God establishes his steps. It reveals two things. Make a plan. Do things. Obey the word. Do what you're supposed to do. Put in the work. You have a responsibility to obey the Bible. You have a responsibility to take care of your family. You have a responsibility to do your job. You have a responsibility to serve the church, to give to the church, to to be a part of the church, to commune with the church, to fellowship with the church, to worship Jesus, to, to praise and glorify God. You have a responsibility to do many things. Do them and plan them. Plan out your life. When are you going to retire? Where are you going to live? Make your plans. But guess what? If God's got different plans, those different plans are going to happen. He's not saying, do nothing and God will do it for you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, do what you're supposed to do. Obey God's will of command by obeying the word and following the word. And as you do so, with every step you take toward that plan, God is going to move your feet. Move every step exactly where he wants it. You know, if you were... uh, if you were uh, stranded in the desert, one of the things they tell you is eventually, because you have no landmarks to tell you where you are, eventually you'll walk in a huge circle and end up right back where you were because you have a dominant leg. One of your legs is so tiny, just slightly more dominant than the other. I'm right foot dominated. So I would make this left turning circle that'd be so subtle that I wouldn't even notice it. And I'd end up right back where I was because this foot would push off with a little bit more, unrecognizably small. I always thought, well, then I would just every few steps take a left turn or a right turn, straighten myself out or whatever. But the point is, it's so subtle you don't even realize it till boom, you're at your destination. Back where I started, did I just walk in a huge circle for a whole day or a few days? And that's how God moves each of our steps. You make a plan and you start walking and God is subtly, without even noticing, just moving you and then all of a sudden, boom, you end up where he wants and you're like, I didn't plan that, but wow, God is good. We are subject to God's ordained will and thus we should be humbled by his greatness when we think about what he's like. To be anything less than properly humbled by God's Greatness is, as James says in 4.16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. That's what we're doing when we give ourselves any greatness that is not from God. It is arrogance to think that anything wonderful, great, meaningful, amazing, or powerful in you comes from you. I can prove that too. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, he has a really, really important question. This is one of the greatest questions you can ask yourself in your entire life. You should ask yourself this every morning when you wake up. What do you have that you did not receive? What an awesome question. It's a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious. Nothing. There is nothing that you have that you did not receive. Everything you have, you received. This body, this mind, these eyes, these ears, this mouth, the bed you wake up in, the house you live in, the car you drive, the job you have, the wife you have, the husband you have, the kids you have, the money you have, the possessions you have, the church you have, the fellowship you have, the heart to worship God, the attitude, the perspective, everything is from God. And anything that's not perfect is us tainting it with our sin nature. What do you have that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. 
So Paul goes on in verse 7 to say, if then you received it. Notice how he doesn't answer the question because the rhetorical question is obvious. You received everything. Everything you have, you received. If you ever have a clever thought of your own, you just think of something, oh, I've never thought about that. Oh, did I just have like my own intelligent thought that was just totally mine on my own? And no, you didn't. You are ran and operated by God's sovereign goodness. Any thought you have was first thought of by God. There's no thought that you could ever have that God has not thought of first. You don't, aren't going to think of something that goes, oh, I, I just didn't see that coming. I didn't know you could think that thought. I didn't think that thought, but now that you've thought that thought, I now have thought that thought. That's impossible. So if you think something, God goes, I already thought about that. Even if it's something terrible and weird or disgusting, God would be like, yeah, I've thought, I, I know about that thought. I had it before you had it. I don't like it. I'm going to crush it and kill it because it's sin, but I know that thought before you ever did. So if you have a thought, and maybe it's a great idea or a great thought or a new one, you've never heard anyone say anything. I've done that, and like, so I'll be writing a sermon and be like, ooh, and I'll think of something really like clever to say, and I'm like, oh, I'm so smart. And God's like, no, you're not. <laughs> I am. Everything you have, every clever thought, every ounce of wisdom, everything that you are and have is from God first. So he says, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? How arrogant for us to think that anything we have, whether it's a possession or anything about ourselves that we have, our mind, our thoughts, our heart, our intentions, the color of our hair, our height, our characteristics in nature, all of it you received from God. Why would we ever boast in anything? Scripture is not removing our human responsibility. When I talk about God's, so God's sovereignty, Scripture does not remove human responsibility. There is clearly in the Bible plenty, plenty of clarity on your responsibility to obey this word and your responsibility to put in efforts to make sure you obey this word to put in systems and decisions to check your heart and examine yourself and do all the things that god commands you to do and nor is scripture removing your human capability when when i say that there's nothing about you that isn't from god everything about you you've received nothing of it is on you that doesn't remove your responsibility and it doesn't remove your capability. Rather, Scripture is properly placing your responsibility and properly placing your capability under its proper authority and power and greatness, which is God. And the application of that in your life is pretty simple. You should praise God. Like, when you think about that, like, like I said, if you spent the next 50 years, 23 hours a day, extolling God and proclaiming God and thinking about God and learning about God and studying God and diving into God, if you spent all that time, you don't think there's going to be moments where you just praise him? You'd have to. You'd have to. It'd be impossible not to. And praise can only come from one heart, and that is a humble heart. So as we learn about God's greatness and we learn about 
our greatness as a product from God, being made in God's likeness. We learn about our greatness as humanity and our fallenness in our humanity and God's perfect holy greatness. What happens has to be humility. Has to be. If, if it's not, then the, the only other conclusion that there is is that you're not saved. You can't know God because you don't have a spirit to understand him. So you're not humbled because you don't know him. So humility, when recognizing who God is and who we are, automatically produces a desire to glorify God and praise him for who he is. So if that's what would have happened if you spend the rest of your life trying to understand and learn God, then why aren't our lives today constantly and always filled with God-glorifying praise? Why aren't they? Now, there are a lot of different ways to praise God. When I say praise, I don't mean sing, although that's a very important way to praise God. But I think about verses that Paul mentions like, pray without ceasing. Okay, so never stop praying. That's praising God. You're recognizing his greatness and your dependence on him. That's praise. Um, be thankful in all circumstances. Okay, so no matter what happens in my life, I'm thankful. Driving to work, get a flat tire. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> we don't go, thank you, Lord. We punch the steering and go, what the, what the, right? That's what we do. Thankful in all circumstances. Pray without ceasing. All of these superlatives, these never-ending, always-do-these-things are described to us in Scripture because that should be the only way you live. That when you understand who God is and who you are, your entire life should be an endless, never-ending, non-stop I love you, Lord. I love you, God. You're amazing. I can't stop thinking about you or learning about you or perceiving you or contemplating you. And my work is influenced by you. My family's influenced by you. My church life is influenced by you. What I eat is influenced by you. What I watch on TV is influenced by you. What I do anytime, at any place, and anywhere, or whatever I'm doing is always influenced by me thinking about how great you are as I spend all this time in the Word and I'm learning about you and I love you and I'm growing and you're so great and then something terrible happens. You go, oh, but I've just spent all my life learning about God and though this terrible thing has happened, I am so grateful that this is my hell and it doesn't get worse than this. Because God has paid for my sins in Christ and in his blood and I have eternal life and I have a hope. This, no matter how hard this is, I'm thankful to God that he has given me something hard. That though this is almost too hard to endure, I'm still thankful for it because God is pruning me and God is chiseling me away to make me more like Christ. And he knows I need this hardship in order to become more like Christ. So thank you, God. I hate this thing that's happened. I hate it because it's, if it's terrible, it's probably the product of sin, right? The greatest thing that ever happened in, human, in, in the world is Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And the only reason that happened is because we sin. So terrible things that happen, even if they end up being great things, happen because sin exists. And so even with sin producing terrible things in your life, we can still look at them and say, God is putting this in my life for a purpose, and I will thank him for it, and I will praise him for it. So whether it's something wonderful and great, we praise God. Whether it's something terrible and horrifying, we still praise God because we know him.
Him. And if you know Him, you can begin to perceive His inexpressible, infinite greatness. And all of life and reality starts to make sense, even when it's hard. Asaph continues in Psalm 76. I'm going to skip the middle verses and just go right to verses 7 through 9. But in the middle verses, it includes the greatness of God over all things, including his enemies, and, and that he is more beautiful and majestic than the most beautiful and majestic places on earth. And then we get to 76 verses 7 through 9, and Asaph writes, But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment, the earth feared and was still, when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Now, Asaph says something amazingly powerful in verse 9. But before we get there, all of what he, what he says in verse 9 is predicated on the truth that he reveals in verses 7 through 8 in the beginning of verse 9. He says that God is to be feared. And that much should be obvious when we appropriately compare all of creation, including ourselves, to the greatness of God who made everything that we perceive, all of reality. So, if all is his and he rules over all, then he is free to do what he wills with all of his creation, meaning we are subject to his decisions and subject to his ability to enforce his decisions and therefore we ought to fear him because he can do whatever he wants to us. That should produce a healthy reverence or fear. I mean, look at all the descriptions in the Bible of when a human encounters an angel, not God, an angel, they fall on their face terrified. And that's a created being. That's not the one true God who is not a physical being, but is, as he describes himself, I am. He is reality. There is only reality for you because he created your reality, and that reality is only real because he's real. And so he is, he just is. And we're like, well, can you describe that a little bit? You know, and God's like, I am. Like, there's no other way to describe me, but I exist. And you exist because I choose that you exist. And we think about the power and the greatness of a God who just is. And you only are because he decided you can be. We ought to fear that God. And there is no response from God that ought to create more fear than when he is angry. Because in his anger he judges. And his judgments are not only just, but they are swift and powerful and can be eternally condemning. And that is why Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is an understatement of, the, of eternity. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He says that right after describing that anyone who persists in continual habitual sin is going to hell. Because what the author of Hebrews is describing is believers will grow. But if you continue to choose sin over and 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 over again, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, are you really saved? 
I'm not talking about sins that catch you. I'm talking about intentional, habitual practice of wickedness. For those, it is a terrifying reality to fall into the hands of a God whose judgments are indescribable. It's a terrifying reality to conceive in our minds and even more terrifying reality to experience. And we see this in verses 8 and 9 that Asaph says that God utters judgment from the heavens. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment. And there is no other response that is fitting than what Asaph writes, that when God judges, the earth is stunned in fear. I mean, I'll give you an example from the Bible. Israel, number 16. Moses, Aaron, they're like, this is what we're going to do. And all the people are at Korah and they rebel against Moses. They rebel against God's ordained leadership. And you know what God does? He opens up the earth, swallows all the rebels, and then returns the earth to normal. Imagine you're standing there and you're like, yeah, I, I agree with these guys. I don't like what's going on with you, Moses. And God just like, oh, really? And then just swallows thousands of people up in an instant. That's, you've never seen that. You've never heard of that except for in Scripture. That doesn't happen, and the earth doesn't return to its original form. If anything, earthquakes, the, you know, when earthquakes happen or whatever, and the, the earth cracks, and maybe, a, you know, something falls in it, whatever, it doesn't, like, go whoop and go right back together. It stays broken, right, or divided or cracked or whatever. God showed his judgment, and all the people were like, what just happened? That's a terrifying thing to see. And that's not even eternal judgment. That's just dying. That's nothing compared to hell. If you think hell's bad, hell's not even as bad as it gets because in Revelation 21, Jesus throws hell in the lake of fire. So the lake of fire is worse. Can you imagine dying for eternity without ever actually ceasing to die but always dying? That is the description of hell, is dying that doesn't end. So you're not living, you're not alive, you don't live eternally in hell, you are dying forever in a lake of fire. You don't want to go there. You need Jesus. <laughs> that is the only solution. That's the only, he's the only savior. He's the only way out. That is all there is to it. You need Christ. If you don't have Christ, you spend eternity dying Imagine if I threw you in a vat that was, say, you're six feet tall, threw you in a six-foot vat of lava, and you have to swim to keep yourself up. I mean, Scripture doesn't describe hell that way, but I'm just trying to give you a, a, a visual here. And you're in this huge vat of lava, and, you know, if I threw you into a vat of lava, you would die, right? Pretty fast. But you're not dying. You feel everything that is dying, but it doesn't go away. And it's not, well, why would a loving God do that? Well, a loving God gave you a way out. You don't want it. That's the problem. He offered you a way out. He said, you don't I don't want you to do that, and you don't have to do that. Believe in me! Well, God, why don't you come to earth and prove yourself? I did, 2,000 years ago, and they killed him! 
They're like, you're not God, and they killed him. You're not, you wouldn't believe if God ripped the roof off and said, I'm God, believe in me. You'd be like, no, I don't know about this. That's, that's human nature. That's who we are. And we go to hell for it if it weren't for God's grace. We, that ought to humble you. <laughs> Listen, I'm up here talking about humility. I really look, I think of myself and I try to think of my own humility. And I'm like, I am a million light years away from humility. I really feel like I am. And I know what you're thinking. That's a pretty humble statement to admit you're not humble. No, I, I'm not trying to like put on this false humility like, oh, I'm not that humble. I really need to get more humble. How humble of me to admit that I'm not humble. That's not at all what I'm doing. I'm not humble. I have so much arrogance and pride. So much. I am caught off guard daily by God's humility, or by humility, or by my arrogance, really. All of us have a lot of growing to do, but humility is where it starts. Because without humility, pride lives in you, and pride refuses to grow, refuses to know God, refuses to understand the depths of who God is and capture this indescribable and inexpressible gift who is God. You can't have arrogance and pride and boastfulness and, and humility at the same time, and you can't have arrogance and pride and be boastful and learn about God and not be swept off your feet and humbled by Him. We need humility, and it comes from being in the Word. And knowing who God is. So after all this scary judgment, this hell, that when God judges, the whole earth stands still in fear. Right? Like you've seen it in movies, maybe you've experienced it yourself. Something so terrifying happens that you just froze. Ah! And you just, ah! And you can't move. That ever happened to you? That's happened to me, walking in the dark through a room, and then you see something in the corner of your eye, and you're like, that's a person! <laughs> and you're just like, freeze, like, stare at him, like, oh, it's a coat, all right. And I was, uh, no, no one's in my house. Okay, so, like, you just, you're frozen by fear. It happens all the time. That, what is that compared to being in the presence of a God who is in the midst of judging? Unimaginable. So we ought to be humbled and stilled in fear when we recognize who God is, especially when he's angry. But, this is awesome, this is key. Everyone listen, this is the key to this whole text. But, though verses 8 and 9 tell us that God judges and we are stilled by fear, Asaph tells us something that doesn't seem to fit this concept he is developing about the nature of God. He says that God does all of this, all this judging and creating fear and humbling us and rec us recognizing his greatness and our non-greatness compared to him. He does all of this and brings all of that wrath and fear to the world. End of verse 9. To save all the humble on earth. To save all the humble. That doesn't make sense. I thought the point of his judgment was to kill people for what they deserve. Well, it is if they deserve it. But if they're humble, if they're humble, who's humble? There's the only people who are humble and this earth are people who know God. You might know an unbeliever, 
And look at that unbeliever and think, they're a very humble person. You know, they don't boast or always giving someone else the credit. Oh, they're very humble. They're not humble. Not at all. They reject the God of the universe. That's not humility. That is nothing but arrogance and pride. You cannot be humble and not know God. If you know God, you are humble. So who in all the earth gets saved when God brings judgment? The humble. And who are the humble? The saved. So all this stilling the earth with fear as God arises in his anger to judge the world in all of his profound, inexpressible, unimaginable, eternal, infinite greatness, and then what is just unfathomable to, unfathomable to us, but how much more terrifying is it when he's angry and he's going to bring judgment and we should go, oh my goodness, we're going to die, and God does this to save you. So instead of fear, what do we get? We're still humbled because we recognize his greatness and his judgment and what we deserve, so we're still humbled, but what's the product? Not death. Joy, praise, thankfulness, gratefulness, honor and glory to God in your heart and in your mind. God's judgment is a means of salvation. Or I should say salvation requires judgment because sin must be dealt with. So judgment and, and salvation are together. They're, they're united in a sense. They, they work together because it's still God doing perfect justice either way. Whether he saves you by his grace or he judges you according to your sins. Either way, justice is served because if you get off from your sins, and you're, you're, you're off scot-free, and you don't get judged for your sins. Well, someone had to pay for your sins, and he did. His name's Jesus. He died on the cross for your sins. Justice was served. Judgment was brought on the Son instead of you. Either way, justice is served. Whether God is judging or saving by his grace, it is still just. And we know this is true when we read through Isaiah 53 that justice, I'm sorry, that judgment and salvation work together. Because we just, a couple weeks ago, you know, we spent five weeks in Isaiah 53 walking through the song of the suffering servant whom is Christ. And that, that judgment on sin fell upon the Savior in order to save those who put him on the cross. So judgment leads to salvation as revealed in the gospel. And not only in the gospel, but immediately at creation. Back in Genesis we see this happen. When you read Ecclesiastes 7.29, it says, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made Adam and Eve upright, but they sought out sin. They were deceived by the serpent, and thus all of them, Adam, Eve, and the serpent, were all judged. And their judgment was severe. Adam and Eve went from per the perfect presence of God to being cast out of his presence forever. Uh, and, and, and the rest of their life, they have to spend it, well, the way we spend it. It was probably actually better for them in some ways, but also worse because they walked with God in the garden and now they can't. So severe and so long term. The punishment and the judgment on Adam and Eve was so great. 
They now know shame. They now know sin. They now know evil. They're ashamed in their nakedness. What about God being loving and patient and a gracious God? Why does he curse Adam and then curse Eve? And why does their punishment last for the rest of their lives and now last for the rest of our lives too? God may have judged Adam and Eve, but what he showed them more than judgment was grace. Look at the grace that God showed Adam and Eve. God told them that when they eat from the tree, they will surely, what? Die. Yet, did they die? No. They lived another day, God's grace. And they not only lived, but they lived a long time, almost a thousand years. And God, instead of killing Adam and Eve, which they deserved, what did he do? He killed an animal. He sacrificed an animal in their place and used the animal skins to make garments to cover their shame of their nakedness, showing us a glimpse of the gospel that he would kill Christ and that he would use the, the flesh of Christ and the blood of Christ to cover our shame and our guilt and our nakedness that is our sinful nature. R.C. Sproul said of Adam, This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. That's not the whole statement, but can we just, I want you to just think about that for a second, okay? This creature, creature, not a God, just a created thing. This creature. Just given a mind and a body because God determined it to be so. Is incomparably small and nothing compared to this great, inexpressible, infinite, indescribable, unfathomable God. This creature that was fashioned out of dirt. Dirt. You were made from dirt, you guys. We talk about dirt like it's the lowest form of anything on earth. Right? What do you do when you walk in the house? Whip the dirt off your shoes. Dirt off my shoes. When you got dirt on you, what do you do? Clean it off. Yeah, dirt. What do you do to your house? Clean it. Why? Because you don't like dirty. We're dirty. We're dirt. We're made from small specks of sand, mud, whatever. That's just... just conceive of that. It's just mind-blowing that he even made anything out of dirt, something as complex as a human being, out of dirt, and then breathe life into it. And then this living creature goes, I don't want to do what you say. How foolish that this everlasting, or that this creature from the dirt defied the everlasting God. And then R.C. Sproul goes on and says, after God had said the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. He still defies him. And then R.C. Sproul goes on and says, and instead of dying that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace. Judgment was given, justice was served, a sacrifice for their sin was made, temporarily, temporarily made sacrifice, but sufficient for the time. Judgment brings salvation, or salvation requires Judgment because sin must be dealt with. And the greatest judgment was declared on the serpent 
to whom God said that the seed of the woman, and again, God's grace to let Eve live another day so to produce a seed, and that from that seed would come salvation in Christ. That is grace. Yes, God judged Adam and Eve for their sin, but boy, did he show them more grace than they ever deserved. God shows them grace because in Genesis 3, God preaches the gospel. It's the first time the gospel is preached in the entire Bible, and it's preached by God. He says to the serpent, the woman will have a seed, and that seed will, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. You might kill him, but he'll rise, and he'll conquer you, and he'll defeat sin, and he'll defeat death, and he'll defeat the grave, and he'll bring my people to life. And he'll make my suffering servant will make these dirt piles we call people into holy, righteous images of God in Christ. So what blows my mind is that God's judgment comes with his grace as well to those who are humble, according to Psalm 76. And the humble are not those who are naturally humble or choose to be humble, but those who are humbled by God and by his grace to show them the severity of their sin and their need for a sacrifice which is provided for them by God and by his grace. And we think about that. How could we ever conceive that we are so special or so great or so powerful or so amazing or so worthy of our own praise or, or I'm just really an awesome person or you know, we think so highly of ourselves. How could we look at God in the Bible, know him, look at ourselves, how we're describing the Bible, know ourselves and go, I'm pretty great. How could we do that? We can't. If you think that sounds negative, you are not hearing what I'm saying. That is not negative. That is the good news. That's the most positive thing I could ever tell you. What would be negative if I told you, you're great. You are great. Now go do great things because you're great. And you're special. And you're unique. And you're wonderful. And you're great. Period. Now go be great. That's a lie that's deceptive and it's negative because it's going to deceive you and it's going to ruin your life. Now, I can tell you, you're great. You're capable of incredible things. You have an unbelievable potential. Because you are made in God's image, so you should be humbled by his greatness. That I can say. But to just say you're great would be deceptive and would be a lie, and it wouldn't serve you well at all. That would be negative. This is positive. You're not great. That's the most positive thing I could ever tell you. Why? Because Jesus said it. It's the first thing he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is spiritual bankruptcy. That is you going, I have nothing to offer God. Nothing. I am dirt. Like R.C. Sproul said, and like God said in Genesis 1, we're dirt. The problem with the world and often the problem with the church is this. We don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. And why don't we know who God is and why don't we know who we are? Because we don't know this. Because how do I know what God's like? The Bible. How do I know what I'm like? The Bible. And what do we depend on instead of the Bible? Our experiences. Well, you know who runs this world? Satan. You know who loves to trick you in your experiences? Satan. You know who can create incredible deception? 
Satan. Do you realize that right now in this world there is a massive, massive outburst of UFOs? <laughs> UFOs are all over the skies. People are recording them. I'm sure plenty of them are like totally digitally faked or whatever. I'm sure half of them are. But like literally I've watched government hearings in Washington, D.C. where like senators are talking about there's so much more going on out there than we even understand that the people know. People don't even know about it, whatever. Like clearly there's UFOs. It doesn't mean there's aliens. I'm not saying there's aliens. I don't know. But there's things up there that we aren't identifying. And maybe somebody knows. I don't know. That's why they're UFOs, unidentified. I don't know what they are. But they're there, and you know what? They're capturing the world. They're capturing the world's attention, and everyone's like, ah. Oh. Do, do you think that that is from God? In the sense that like, God's like, I sent you these UFOs to show you my love and grace. No. I mean, maybe it's a, a, you know, like a U.S. spacecraft and they're testing something. I don't know. Maybe it's an alien. I don't know. I mean, I, just, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it is. And what I do know is Satan is insanely clever, way smarter than you will ever be. He knows the Bible better than you do, better than I do. And he knows how to use this. To deceive you, because that's what he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. God said, you're going to die. You're not going to die. You're going to know good from evil. Well, he's right. They did. And he used God's words and twisted them to deceive. And so how difficult is it for Satan and his army of demons to put little lights in the sky and make the whole world go, ah, UFOs! Who's paying attention to Jesus when you're too concerned about UFOs? You're thinking, well, that's not evil, so it's not from Satan. Of course it's evil, because it's not Jesus. And it's distracting us from this. And I could name a million other things that aren't UFOs or some other thing that we're all caught up in and care about and worried about that distract us from loving Jesus. Satan's clever. He wants to distract you. Instead of getting you in this word. Satan doesn't want you in the word. We need to be in the word so we know God and we know who we are so we can see that when we're in the word and we recognize, we begin to learn and understand who God is and who we are, what will naturally develop is a gap. And the more we learn about God and the more we learn about ourselves, the bigger that gap gets because that gap is ultimately infinite. And the more we begin to see the infinite nature of that gap, the more we are humbled and only from humility can we spend every breath in our life praising God let's pray Lord we love you we thank you we don't deserve you but you give us yourself in Christ what a great gift thank you so much I pray that our lives would just be inundated with constant praise and thankfulness to you for who you are help us learn more about you to see your greatness and to know our fallenness And then from there, we can begin to truly understand whatever greatness you have put in us to do your work and your will so that you would get all the glory and all the praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.